Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well, Darren, on this year of our Lord's 2020, the the year of the pl- the year of the plague. Um, I don't I don't I, I um I don't want to date the podcast too much by saying what year it is, but um but I'm 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 doing very well and it's very much 2020. Um, how 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 are, how are you, Darren? I'm grand. I am getting by. Um, it's been you know a bit more stressful lately. We're kind of we coming to the end of a bunch of stuff that I had on my plate that I've been trying to clear off in order to make room for more work that I can do kind of later on as well. So I'm kind of getting ready for some projects going forward. Are you I'm kind of enjoying Are you questioning the emptiness of it all? Just look into my eyes, Andrew. <laughs> You'll see nothing. Nothing, sire. <laughs> no, sorry. Go on. I I interrupted you. This this is uh, I'm I'm going to blame Skype. And and not, uh, and not yeah, and not just my tendency to interrupt you constantly. Um, well, it's good if you didn't interrupt me, nobody would ever say anything. It's fine. It's a good thing. People should always interrupt me. Well, it's just the um, two of us I'll... anyway. You you go ahead and <laughs> and say what? You... Who's that? Hello. Uh, oh my God! In it, terms of, of it's PB. In terms, I haven't of... been introduced yet, <laughs> in... but I will not be ignored. <laughs> Um, and in terms of interrupting us, and I'm glad that you gave me that little segue, Andrew, we have a guest on this week who will show absolutely no hesitation to interrupt either of us. It's the wonderful Phil Bagnell. How are you, Phil? Hello. I'm good. Thank what, you for asking. That is what you're here for. We're trying to, like, um, exactly. If any of us are talking, interrupt us immediately. Just uh, cut right in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, no... We have we invited Phil on. Well, actually, Phil kind of invited himself on. <laughs> but we decided around about in, in early March, uh, if people can remember what early March was like in the year 2020, uh, Max von Sydow passed away. Um, now, very tragic death, huge loss in terms of world cinema, in terms of cinema in general, in terms of cinema as an art form as well. And we talked with Phil and we wanted to talk about one of his great works, one of his most kind of influential, important works, one of the films that people think about when they think about Max von Sydow. Um, And that was obviously The Seventh Seal. And Phil said that he'd happily come on and talk to us both about Max von Sydow as an actor, Ingmar Bergman as a director, but also obviously the film itself, which is one of the most iconic and influential foreign films of all times. It's one of the movies that people think about when they think about world cinema, even if they have never seen the film itself. It's been filtered through pop culture, through parody. It's been referenced, homaged. It's been re- it hasn't been remade actually, but it has been sort of alluded to and is generally one of the kind of stock cliches. If a character in a comedy is going to see an art film, odds are that it's going to look a lot like the film that we're going to be talking about today, which is The Seventh Seal. So thank you very much for joining us, Phil. Uh, my pleasure. Um, <laughs> no pressure after that. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's 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 one of Max von Sydow's best movies. Mm. Um, Mark Kermode says it's not the best. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, Max von Sydow is a big Shutter Island fan and Star Wars: The Force Awakens fan. It turns out, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's clearly what he's alluding to there. Yeah, Game of Thrones. Remember that? Remember, um, I, there was a certain website. I'm not going to name what it was on the air, <laughs> but it very cleverly announced that when Max von Sydow was cast in The Force Awakens, it announced him as Game of Thrones actor Max von Sydow, <laughs> which I thought was quite a kind of a comp- 
compelling, you know, encapsulation of the man's lengthy 50-odd that almost, career in film and television. That almost feels like a jig, doesn't it? Like... I, I would never, never do that. I thought it was just an interesting choice in terms of summing up the man's filmography, which is incredibly varied. And yes, The Seven Seal is obviously timely for reasons that Andrew kind of alluded to. And we'll probably talk about that when we get into the podcast Game later. of Thrones this is interesting. actor Max von Sydow. He's the bloody exorcist. We, we <laughs> among many many other things we had to we had to uh we first thought of this on the death of max von Sido, but somehow the time seemed not quite right so we uh, <laughs> instead yeah instead, i mean the death, instead, the death of von Sido and a plague when on earth were we going to talk about this right yeah, yeah. that's it exactly the, the original plan was that we were going to use the Seven Seal discussion to kind of open up our world tour. You know, we're going to follow Birdemic shock and terror with the discussion of the Seven Seal, which I think would have been a nice twofer in terms of like contrasting your pandemic cinema. But our schedules didn't quite work out. So we managed to kind of break it up a little bit. And actually, the Seven Seal now is going to serve as kind of a bit of a closure. We, we've embarked over the past three months an exploration of world cinema. And it feels appropriate that we kind of circle back around to talking about the Seven Seal. But before we do, do you want to talk about Max von Sydow a little bit? In terms of our memories of him as an actor, our kind of our preferences, like he is or was one of the giants in terms of cinema. He was an actor that I recognized long before I knew his name, in large part because he was always there. Mm. He was an actor, before I knew him as a foreign film actor, I knew him from his work in the 80s, films like Flash Gordon, films like Dune, for example, <laughs> and then kind of delving in and discovering that he had a much richer history as well. I got really, really, really an actor who I always had a great deal of fond of. But Phil, what about yourself? Uh, like you say, just an actor who was always there. Um, I probably came to know him first through a, a lot of work. He, he just kept cropping up in films that I remember seeing um, when my love of cinema was kind of burgeoning in my early teens. So he would crop up in things like Minority Report or The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And then you start going back through cinema and you find he's in, you know, he's a star of all of so many Bergman films. He's The Exorcist. He's, he just, he's, like you say, he's always been a fixture. And um, the fact that he had this tremendously long and varied and acclaimed career. I mean, if any actor out there is looking for a career to emulate, his has to be a template. It's absolutely phenomenal as how varied the work is, uh, not in terms of all the different directors he worked with, the different genres he worked in, and and of course, the, like I said, the length of it. It's um absolutely remarkable career. It's notable as well that like the the thing with Von Sidoff was like when he moved to Hollywood, he did complain that Hollywood tended to typecast him in a way that Swedish cinema didn't, and that Hollywood tend to look on you as an actor as somebody to repeat what you've done already rather than to try new things. But you're entirely correct about noting the sheer versatility of his roles. And again, this is just in Hollywood. Like this is ignoring his collaborations at Bergman, his international work, which is notable of itself, and we'll probably talk about it in a second. But things like playing he played Jesus Christ in the greatest story ever told in 1965. He then played the devil in Needful Things in 1993. <laughs> Sigmund Freud, here's one for Andrew, in an episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I don't believe that one was set in Dublin. He's worked with directors like Martin Scorsese on Shutter Island, Steven Spielberg in Minority Report, which you mentioned, David Lynch in Dune, which I mentioned, John Huston in The Kremlin Letter, Wim Wenders in Until the End of the World, Ridley Scott in Robin Hood in 2010. <laughs> Woody Allen, obviously, who was a big Bergman fan, used him in Hannah and Her Sisters, and Terry Argenta in kind of Sleepless as well. He's 
twice Oscar nominated uh, for his work as well, most notably and most recently for the, and I'm going to be honest here, quite frankly, terrible, extremely loud and incredibly close, which he was best thing about best thing about that film by a country mile. Um, and he's, it's funny. I just I get that variance in his roles. Like you said, he played both Jesus and the devil. Just incidentally as well, the greatest story ever told is an absolutely terrible, um, uh, uh, adaptation of uh, the New Testament story. I mean, if you ever want to see a film single-handedly sunk by one line delivery, that's it. You've got John Wayne as uh, as a centurion and no affectation or change to his to his accent at all, struts in like he's just shot a bunch of Native Americans and says, truly this man was a son of God. Uh, appalling, appalling, but that's certainly not to reflect on von Sido. And and it's fu- so you would go so far as to say it's not the greatest story ever uh, told. You might say that. And also, it's I just find it so odd that he's in his Hollywood career. He's somebody who could find himself typecast. If you ever look at pictures of a younger von Sido, he's got this wonderfully nordic look he looks like a young alexander skarsgård immensely handsome man a very kind of towering and imposing figure he could always play kind of authoritative types and uh just any director who could see that and learn how to use that uh, he was a boon it's it's worth noting as well like obviously he's most known for his work with ingmar bergman and again the film we're going to talk about today the seventh seal was the first film that they made together they'd worked together in theater they'd done actually a rendition of faust as well uh beforehand and had a long and fruitful relationship gas gas station attendants (laughs) and well that was next that was the next movie wasn't it that was uh strawberries he followed this one yeah he did such a great job on this that he was given a role in Wild Strawberries um, at a at a at a petrol pump. Yeah. yeah, it's like um, it's like Wayne, Wayne's World too, with like Charlton Heston kind of working in a shop. Um, yeah. We really need you to sell this. He's the guy who holds the movie together. But again, like the thing is that it's notable that von Sydow was only twenty-seven years old when he made this movie. Which is striking. It is. Um, even just kind of watching him playing Antonius Block. And I mean, we'll talk more in the spoiler zone about that. But he has this kind of, you mentioned the towering presence that he has, but he almost has a kind of a wisdom beyond his years. He seems like he's seen and kind of traveled and, and kind of experienced more he's, than most people do in a lifetime. He's got a great voice and it, it really adds a gravitas to his projects. Like like um, Rush, Rush Hour 3 might not be the classic <laughs> that um it is today if it, if it wasn't for for his his contributions similarly uh, judge dread um <laughs> i genuinely, i genuinely um uh, the the that that's a that's that's a lot of fun uh, hey i respect any actor who is quite clearly doing one for the money i mean i can yeah, exactly. i can understand yeah. that but well, to, to be fair to Von Sidoff, even when he was doing, quote, one for the money, unquote, I know. he was always immensely He watched. was, but that's where you get him. Because no, he 100%. Was just, he was great to watch. Um, it's, like you say, though, he's possessed of some kind, he felt like he was possessed of some kind of wisdom beyond his years, which, of course, is absolutely perfect for the Seventh Seal. Yeah, he may have been only 27 and could have played a 27-year-old in the film, but considering that he's he's a knight, 
coming back from the Crusades, he definitely needs to have a look of somebody who's experienced f something well beyond his years and his own comprehension. So fair enough. And in terms of his voice, uh, there's a great story Christopher Plummer tells from when he was making The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And of course, in that he plays a Swedish patriarch. And he kept saying that he was trying to do the accent, but any time he did, he said, quote unquote, I just ended up sounding like my good friend, Max von Sydow. <laughs> uh, I'd like to think what... I love the idea that Plummer was just eager to drop in the fact that he was friends with Max von Sydow. Wouldn't you? Like, yeah, I'm just going to drop that in. Wouldn't you? That's fair. What about, one of my great um, and again, tonight is now, now we can. Sound swanky, but... Uh, <laughs> he's, not, he's not around anymore to contradict us. Um, true, true. That's, um, and actually, here's a, here's a small detail I'm about Zidoff, actually, which I absolutely adore, which is that he was a big fan of handwritten letters, and we'll include some of them in the show notes. But like, whenever he couldn't attend things, whenever he couldn't, he was unable or unwilling to kind of visit or kind of like work on a project, he'd write these wonderful handwritten letters, politely declining. So, for example, the Academy Awards, when he got a nomination for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, there's a letter he wrote to the Academy thanking them for their consideration. Uh, when he couldn't make the Dublin Film Festival in 2014, he wrote a letter as well, which was very thoughtful, actually surprisingly long and very considerate, which was incredibly sweet as well. So, I mean, you know, I, I have to imagine if we set, called ourselves friends of Max von Sydow, he seems like he'd probably be too polite to call us out. <laughs> well, yeah, he'd, be, he'd, he'd say, oh, oh, yeah, the, the, the um, Dublin International Film Festival, that's it. Yes, now I know you. How have you been? <laughs> you... <laughs> Uh, in a, a kind of, we talked a little bit about von Sydow in particular, but this is the movie that really brought him to international prominence, that really established him as a star. We mentioned that within 10 years he was making movies in Hollywood. The Seventh Seal is a landmark production um, in terms of international cinema, in terms of Swedish cinema, in terms of films by Ingmar Bergman. Um, can I ask, Phil, do you remember the first time that you saw it? Um, I would have seen it uh, when I was in college, and it was one of those things where it, it's a film you feel like you have to see at some point because it's such a towering presence. It's like, it's one of the monoliths. You know, it's like 2001. It's like, um, you, you, you have to because the images from it and its story are so synonymous with cinema as an art form. So you kind of have to go and see it and see what all the fuss is about. And when I did, I suppose in my haste, I just kind of latched onto the imagery that we know, like death the chess on the board. beach. A de yeah, the, the chess match on the beach with death. Death on the beach is a much less appealing cocktail, I have to admit. Um, and also <laughs> a much less appealing mid-90s number one hit. It doesn't get as much airtime. Don't put that in my head. Don't put that in my Darren, head. Darren, if... It, like, how appealing would it need to be for you to drink that cocktail? <laughs> That's a fair point. Um, I'm maybe not the best judge. I don't know. Come the end of the week, I probably would. Um, but anyway, sorry, Phil, I cut you off there. Apologies. No. Oh, you're doing the interrupting now. Well, well. <laughs> um, I, anyway, that was my first time seeing it, and I just, you know, recognize the imagery, and you just go, ah, so that's what the fuss is about. And then rewatching it subsequently, and you look more at the at the plot and the characters and the themes, and it's and it just the the existential dread and darkness of it is what sticks in your mind afterwards. It's a 
this is not a very happy movie. <laughs> Needless to say, I don't. But, I don't um, think that's true. Oh uh, yeah, I well, would almost disagree with that. I yeah. Think, uh, um, well, I mean, it's it's not a it's it's not a it's not a pick me up. Uh, ultimately, it's hopeful, but by and large, it's not it's not a film you're ever going to watch. Um, to you know, at, at the end of a long day, you're not going to be caught between this and singing in the rain for uh, for a laugh a minute. That's fair, but probably compared to something like I don't know, um, Hannah and her not Hannah and her sister. Sorry, that's the what am I thinking of the Yellow. Fanny Alexander or something like that, or the other Bergman films that I've seen. The very short list of them. This is probably the one that I most I find most enjoyable. Uh, fair enough. I mean, even compared to the other ones that Von Sido is in. Um, <laughs> It's not. It's not winter light or the virgin yeah. spring, certainly. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah, um, I. It, like I say, it's just one of those films that you kind of end up having to watch because of what it is. But you'll get more out of it if you're going in with just that mindset because it has, it so much to offer. It's an immensely rich film. Yeah, and I'd kind of, um, I'd kind of say to people as well, um, if. If you think of The Seventh Seal as this kind of like tremendously worthy and important and profound film that you really ought to get around to watching, then you've you've then you're at a disadvantage, I think, because this film is not a chore at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, this I, like I, 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 I found it immensely entertaining, which I well, wasn't mm. expecting because it is kind of known, uh, I guess, uh, I guess wrongly as the kind of arch um, art movie. Art. And yeah, yeah. And there's 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 a sort of like a um, an idea that gets um, um, associated with that. Um, whereas like, like, like you could watch Bill and Ted's, um, Bogus <laughs> Adventure and, and Excellent Adventure uh, and Bogus, and Journey. Bogus Journey, I beg your pardon. Um, um, and you will enjoy Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, probably, but there is, <laughs> there, there is a deeper, um, more enduring um kind of enjoyment to be had um out of this it's not it's not um it's not homework even though i had to watch it as homework um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks andrew <laughs> you've watched worse films of this podcast uh, this is true. absolutely yes in fact you've watched a worse one featuring max von Sydow, if you remember oh i'm trying to think I've definitely seen what, no, uh, worse ones with Jürgen, Jürgen Prock now. Um. <laughs> that, is, that is a very fair point. Well, worse or better? I mean, are we going to be the podcast that argues that Uwe Boll is a cinematic successor to Ingmar Bergman in terms of encapsulating humanity's kind of struggle against the darkness and the wariness that lurks out there waiting for us? The unanswered questions waiting in the darkness. I think there's an argument we can make there. Like, but if, we're not going to make if it. If anything, I think there's an argument for more... Um, of his of his movies is Phil talking about the Exorcist? <laughs> I was going Exorcist two, but fair enough. Oh, oh, he was only course. in Flash. Oh, he, he did appear in that. He did film some new material. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Very brief new material, but yes, he did. Um, and listeners can listen back to our discussion of that as well. 
Um, it's, uh, uh, that, that was good fun. Us three and uh, Bernice. Yeah. And again, I can I kind of agree with both Andrew and, and Phil on this, because I would have seen the movie... We talked in the podcast before about how world cinema is one of my blind spots. I'm not as au fait with it as I should be, but I did see um, The Seven Seal at a very young age, in large part because it was one of the films that you were supposed to see, which is arguably one of the benefits of having this, like, the 250, or kind of, like, the idea of having a cinematic canon, is that it draws your attention towards particular projects. And watching it then, I was surprised at what Andrew said, which is that it didn't feel like eating my vegetables. It was surprisingly funny. It was surprisingly <laughs> playful. It was very cheeky. It was very easy to watch. It was very accessible, very easy to follow, very easy to understand. Um, and again, I'd, I'd almost kind of forgotten it because when I rewatched it for this podcast, I was again taken back with, isn't this supposed to feel like work? Isn't this supposed to feel like it's a chore? Like watching this makes me a better person or makes me a more educated or more informed person. Again, that cinematic equivalent of eating your greens. And it's never felt like that. And again, I, you know, we talked in the podcast, we've been perhaps a bit wary of European auteurs. People like, say, Andrei Tchaikovsky, for example, is a director that myself and Andrew maybe aren't as fond of as, as certain cinephiles would be. And, you know, I mean, I think I respect Tchaikovsky without loving Even if him. you don't like him even if I don't like him, but I absolutely adore The Seventh Seal. It is a joy to watch. And I think that's maybe a springboard into the three questions that we're going to ask now. So Phil, to kick us all off here, do you think that The Seventh Seal belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Absolutely. No question. Like it's, it has its rep for a reason. Um, it's, it's profound. It's moving. It is shockingly entertaining, and um, yes, it is just for the if only for the influence it has, it deserves to be there. But it has so much more to offer as well. And that's it, because it like again, this is one of the weird things with its influence. That influence was kind of what made me wary of watching it. Was because I felt like I'd seen so much of the movie in pop culture, and it felt like it had become shorthand for you know this is a very serious work that you have to treat with the solemnity and grace. And again, like even when you look at recent films, like say Five Hundred Days of Summer, and there's a sequence in that where uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt goes to see an art house film, and it's in French, but again, it's shot in black and white, and it's these kind of characters who are very stern and very stoic and again that's kind of what I imagined it would be and I, I kind of really like the fact that it's not that it, it's very organic it's very playful it's very accessible so it manages mm. to be both of those things it is usually influential but it's also just a great movie in its own right but Andrew what about yourself do you think that it belongs to the list of the 250 greatest movies that we've ever seen absolutely and I think it deserves to be higher as well um, and it's at 156 at the time of recording yeah yeah, that, like the, it's it's kind of it kind of deserves to be in the in the in the top rungs. Like it's it is a tremendous movie. It's filled with um, memorable uh, characters, um, fantastic performances. The um, it's very funny. It's extremely profound, um, and just kind of refuses to be um uh, uh facile kind of at, 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 at any point 
um it's 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 a it's a real it's a real work of art yeah i i, I it does it does it does belong on the 250 and if 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 it weren't on the 250 the 250 would be lesser for us so yeah, it's notable it's that it has actually it's one of those films that is in a gradual and sloping decline in terms of the list it has uh, been on the list since its inception it's one of the 100 percenters um its highest rank was number 74 and it's kind of gradually fallen people are since then. gradually getting stupider um <laughs> that, that's how we extrapolate but, the trend basically um, but then again it's taken 20 it's taken over 25 years to fall 80 places like it's not going to leave the list just yet oh like. no not at all i mean it's worth noting that it had a big it was one of the movies that suffered greatly during what we call the purge last year where we lost jaws um this fell 10 spaces in the in the pace of a week um <sighs> Which is uh, a, I, I will not rest until either the 250 is destroyed or <laughs> Jaws is restored. Um, <laughs> what if you try to put Jaws that... into the 250 and Jaws eats all of the other movies? You know? <laughs> I would be okay with that. If I only had to have one movie left and it were Jaws, I would be totally fine with that. I'm kind of imagining, like, the, again, appropriately enough, given the seventh seal and given Ian McKellen played death from the seventh seal in this movie i think very much of a weird last action hero kind of situation where all of the 250 (laughs) movies are kind of pitched against one another which will survive um but yes i would agree entirely with andrew and phil um this is an absolutely beautiful film i've loved it since i saw it as as a kind of teenager with a kind of an emerging interest in film Rewatching it again it was a joy and i almost feel ashamed that it took me so long to rediscover it or to go back to it uh, and kind of like allow that sense of it as an artifact to kind of calcify in my mind because it's it's a joy of a film second question then Mm. phil would it be on your own personal list your own personal say 250 films 250 favorites yeah yeah definitely it's i could watch it right now actually um Screw it, I'm tempted. See you. <laughs> see, uh, no, see you guys um, in 96 minutes. Um. <laughs> and it's brief too. It's it, for something that uh, for something that has this worthy rep. There is there are so many elements of it that are make it shockingly accessible. Uh, yeah, it is relatively short. Um, yeah, it definitely would. Um, it's it's a film that I wouldn't be reticent about recommending to people either. Um, yeah, because it's got something to say to pretty much anyone. Yeah, it's a very well, let's let's not let's not jump ahead of ourselves, Phil. The three <laughs> question structure exists for a very clear and delineated reason. Um, I'm just saying that's why it would be on my list. There's a theme on. coming out of Darren's ears. <laughs> if he could cry, it does not compute. he would. I... Um... <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> um, but what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal 250, Andrew? <laughs> Um, yes, and the it is it is a great movie because it kind of um, it teaches you so much. Like like it, there's so much of life that you can apply this movie to. Like for for example, um, if you're being um, if you have a job, which which some people do, um, and your boss um, uh, tries to fire you, you can challenge. Um, him or her to a chess game um also if if you get caught for tax evasion you can um challenge the tax man to a game of chess um i knew it was a mistake to give you wesley snipes's biography and guide to riches <laughs> and yeah like, like if you're if you're if you're if you have a partner and she she 
once like a, a, a divorce or a breakup, you say, I will, I, yes, if I win this chess game though, yeah. So it's, 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 it's very, um, um, applicable to life situations. Very applicable yeah. indeed. Yeah. No, I, I would, I would, I would have it on my own. On my own two two fifty, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and I would agree with that as well to make that three for three. And then finally, Phil, would you recommend people watch it? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I would. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. No. Um, and if if you're contemplating watching us, having not watched it yet, while still listening to us, well, off you go. Yeah. Um. And Andrew. Yes. Now, it is. Um, difficult to watch in the sense of if you want to watch it, um, it's somewhat difficult to find. Um, yes. So um, be be aware of that. Um, know know that um, um, if you're if you're in Ireland, it might it might prove a challenge. Um, yeah. But I, I, in spite, in spite of the difficulties of, of, of getting hold of, say, a streaming version of this, which is, which is what a lot of, um, people are are using to watch movies these days. Because who even has a DVD player? Um, yeah, it is it. Or four. Or four, Darren, the one percent. <laughs> 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 But, um, oh, what a sad state of affairs we're in, where we measure wealth in Blu-ray players. It's like Jeff Bezos. I didn't even so say Blu-ray. Blu-ray, la di da. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I got my Blu-ray over there, Mister Elon Musk, <laughs> and my Ray Bans. Um, yeah, no, you're uh, straight balling, um, Darren. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I'd recommend it in spite of in spite of the difficulty. Even if you have to go buy a Blu-ray player, um, it, it, it would be so worth it. Watch a Blu-ray copy. Of yeah, it. yeah. Yes, um, I I would recommend this as well. I would say don't be put off by its reputation, as we kind of discussed already. It's a wonderfully accessible film in so many ways. In terms of being accessible, yes, that is actually a challenge, and unfortunately, one I didn't realize before I asked Andrew that he watched this. Um, so I'm sorry about that. No. Um, it is. <laughs> No, no, because generally it's like, let's watch a movie. It's like, okay, I will take care of the movie. But in the pandemic, it's like, no, no, we have to find the movie now, uh, which is a bit of a challenge, I have to admit. See, I... streaming services have their limitations. Don't but... take physical media for granted. That's that's my lesson, and I swear I will be buried clutching this Bergman Blu-ray box set that I have here. Buried, I Listeners, say. Listeners, he, he is actually clutching a Bergman box set, um, just in case. In case anybody needs any help visualizing it. Um, but yes, what I would actually note, despite Phil's protestation about streaming services, um, The Seventh Seal is available on the Criterion streaming service at the moment, um, as you're listening to this podcast. So, so if you are in the United States... Or if you your computer thinks you're in the United States. Well, I would never <laughs> suggest anything of questionable legality like using a VPN in order to subscribe for the service and paying using an international PayPal account. That would certainly not be anything that I would recommend that anybody do because that would be illegal and suspect and highly morally questionable. And so if you, somebody were to do that... You'd be opening the back door to China. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, 
Yeah, let's not open that particular kettle of fish. Uh, uh, but yeah. yes, it is available on on the Criterion um, podcast. Uh, sorry, in the Criterion app at the moment. And actually, if you're watching on the Criterion, it comes with a range of special features as well, including a feature length commentary and some archival discussions with Bergman himself as well. So very worth seeking out there. I would wholeheartedly and unreservedly recommend watching this movie. With that in mind, then please join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So, Phil, what is the seventh seal, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it in Swedish, about for you? <laughs> um, I don't speak Swedish. How does one pronounce that? Let me see. The Tsunde I guess. Well, I, Sure, let's um, go with that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, what's it about? Um, death! It's about death it's everywhere it's outside your door we're done for we're all gonna die you uh, speak for yourself phil uh, <laughs> that's only one part of it though i plan to, to live forever <laughs> as long as i resist you i live um so okay that was very good aside. actually what's nice what, what's that 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 Max von Sydow was very good. Uh, nice <laughs> again. It's a again. It's a very distinct voice and uh, mellifluous. Dare I say, a pleasure to listen to. Um, but all seriousness, what is it about? Um, well, it's about. Without sounding too pretentious about it, it's about that great fear that we all have, not just of death, but what death entails, what it means. The If you look at any kind of commentary on the film, uh, one of the great themes that, keep, that keeps getting referred to is the idea of the silence of God. And like what... The kind of despair that people can feel in the greatest of traumas and challenges. And again, I suppose this kind of speaks to our cultural moment that there's a lot of people out there who are looking at the state of the world and how we're responding to current challenges. And we're wondering you know, what authorities are at work and who's kind of running things. And if any of those people were to watch The Seventh Seal today, they'd probably see a lot of resonance in it because it's a film that is about people trying to make their way through a landscape and through a situation that is um, rife with peril and despair. And they're questioning what exactly is going on and how they are ever going to get through it all. Um, but they also find that... The answer could be relatively simple as well. Um, it's just once it takes them a while to get through their line of questioning and figure out what they're looking for. But if they just focus on it, they might find it. Yeah, because it, so it can it can be a very lonely world as well, unless you're friends with Satan. Um, <laughs> In which case, he's always with you. He's with me right now. Exactly. Um, he he is. Is. 
Um, it is um, worth noting, actually, just in, in terms of that, in terms of what you're talking about there, because obviously this is an allegory. This is very much a parable, a kind of a story. It opens, quoting from the Book of Revelations. The title obviously comes to the Book of Revelation as well. And in fact, you mentioned the science of God. That is taken directly from Revelation as well. The idea that after the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour, I think, is, is the kind of quote from Scripture. Yeah. God is, there. is an absentee landlord. <laughs> Um, oh, God. And, Damn you, shouty owl. And again, you know, again, Revelation itself, I think we talked about this in the podcast before, but the thing about Revelation is that it is itself a parable. Uh, there's a tendency in certain schools of Christianity and eschatology to kind of believe that the, the book of Revelation is a prophecy, that it predicts the end of the world and how the end of the world is going to happen. And we talked about this on Say Left Behind with Andy, uh, which I really, really liked. I really enjoyed that conversation. But Revelation has also been interpreted as an allegory for the experience of Christians under Rome. And it, that was written in code. That's written in such a way as to kind of document the experience of being a Christian living under Roman rule and to offer an account of the events within the empire uh, during the time that it was written as well. So it's arguably as much a history as it is a projection of the future prophecy. Uh, but in terms of the, the film itself, the Bergman very consciously designed uh, The Seventh Seal to work as an allegory. It's very much not meant to be taken seriously or straightforwardly as a historical text. It's notable, for example, the last Swedish crusade took place in uh, 1293 and the Black Death hit Europe in 1348. So there's no way that those two events could line up. Uh, flagellation was largely absent from Sweden. There's no real historical record of that taking place there. And large-scale persecutions of witches also only took place in the 1400s as well. But Bergman's... Well, the, the, the anachronisms in this movie are kind of Thicken fast, I guess. But um, even in terms of the chess, it's funny that that kind of chess takes such a kind of a a, a central role. But I I think I I don't feel like um, uh, we can criticize this movie too strongly for the um, I guess continuity as well. If you want to give it a pass, you can say that that wasn't important. I would have maybe preferred if it had a a game of chess that that's um that maybe made a bit more sense and 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 that and that perhaps wasn't an anachronism i suppose i suppose like it it's not a chess podcast um <laughs> So, uh, so we 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 don't need to discuss it. Yeah, let's shoot those rumors down right yeah, now. Yeah, it, it, in case anybody has gotten a hundred and ninety odd episodes into this podcast, waiting for the moment where the twist and we reveal ourselves as a jazz podcast, we are sorry to disappoint. It's a it's a big problem though because because it it it's not it it's not a um, a game that has I think lent itself particularly well to um to film to film yeah no it's it's quite still and it takes a long time it's quite a patient game it's it's actually one we that i know we've come across before i remember when we were discussing of all things um the avengers the the 1998 one um and we mentioned that chess appeared there but it was mostly there as a, a means of a very weak means of that of showing that the protagonists are smart because they play chess and i suppose it's true to a certain extent andrew that um that here it's like it's it is just here i don't think it's here to show necessarily any intelligence on uh the part of either of the players in this case 
but I suppose it's just to show that in the context of what is happening within the film and um, considering that one of the players is death, is the Reaper himself, that all of human life from his perspective is just chess. It's just a game. So I suppose that's, that's ultimately its function, but it never feels particularly high stakes within the film. It's just something that it's the pretext by which uh, Block, uh, our, our lead, keeps coming back to death to play for his soul. But it never feels like, like we never feel particularly on edge as to whether he wins the game or not, whether he saves his soul or not. Because I suppose one of the lessons of the Seven Seal is that it doesn't necessarily matter. Like the saving of Block's soul is not the is not the big question to be answered here. Well, I mean, again, we only see the chessboard three times over the course of the film, which is remarkable given that this is the movie where you play, you know, chess with death in order to fight to save your life. Like that's what the film well, is it's known a gr- of. It's the most it's like, a great iconic visual in image all of cinema. Film. It is, but it's a great. It is just a great image, you know, because it, there's something so powerful about it. It preys on a lot of um, basic ideas about so much of the themes of this film. It's not all that important necessarily. The question of whether or not Antonius Block manages to save his soul uh, from death's grasp is not really the question that is sought to be answered in this film. It's got far more pressing concerns than the than the soul of one man. Plus, plus, if you've seen the trailer on YouTube, it's told you already in this in the style <laughs> in the style of um, old uh, trailers. It's um, it it says um, uh, by uh, it, it's. It's like by Ingmar Bergman, and then it tells you everything that happens, and then it's like, but don't worry, it all <laughs> it all works out okay in the end, because um, he saves uh, he saves the family by knocking over the chess pieces. Um, I, it doesn't. I love that it not only explains the plot of the movie, but also the moral as well. It does. So there's literally no point. There's no reason it, to go. It, it explains <laughs> that there, in spite of in spite of all these terrors, there is beauty in the world and innocence. Like this is all in the um, the trailer. The trailer. Yeah, incredible. Like. I kind of love the idea of a time when film trailers made film critics irrelevant. Where it's like, what was the movie about for you? Oh, don't worry. We'll just play the trailer for it and that'll sort it out for us. It's the 250 in trailer form. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is worth noting, actually, because we kind of how we got onto this was talking about the anachronisms within the film, because to bring us back to what Phil was talking about there. I mean, the, the, the whole point of the film is that it plays kind of as a parable that's not meant to be entirely literal. And again, a lot of critics have drawn connections. Obviously, this was released in 1957. A lot of parallels in terms of the fear of, say, nuclear annihilation that was hanging over Europe around the same time. A lot of the fears that we saw when we talked about wages of fear a couple of weeks ago with Tony Black. Kind of this idea of Europe as a continent existing where it could would just explode because of you know tensions between russia and the united states reaching a fevered pitch again the idea that you know the, the metaphor of the plague or the crusades 
applies just as readily to the Second World War. The legacy of coming out of the Second World War, soldiers returning home and then facing these existential questions, this idea of a new Cold War brewing and the idea of like human extinction suddenly being put on the table as well. So I think it, it makes sense that it has aged as well as kind of, you know, Phil and Andrew have suggested there when they say this is a movie that feels in many ways, perhaps too pointedly and perhaps a little bit uncomfortably, like a 2020 movie. It's a film that you watch today and it taps into many of the same anxieties, many of the same fears. This idea of a disease spreading across Europe, this idea of having that space where you as a person have to figure out what your existence actually means because nobody's going to be there to provide you with a clean answer to it. So I think I think it kind of works in that sense as a, as a kind of a parable. It doesn't have to be like... Cross- it doesn't have to be historically, historically exact, accurate. No. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's kind of timeless as, as, as well because um, kind of the, it's, it's a kind of... Um, there's an evergreen sort of a reassurance about the movie in 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 that you are doomed and you will die, um, and it's as true now as it was then. Um, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, it's kind of reassuring that every every generation has had their own apocalypse. Is what the film seems to suggest. It's like <laughs> humanity survived the bubonic plague, and like watching it in the cinema in 1957, you knew that humanity had survived the Second World War, and so you know that, like you know, logically this may feel like the end of the world that we're living through and it probably will be very terrible and there are lots of people dying and it's it's horrific and it's an existential crisis but humanity has endured this sort of thing before and yeah. there is again this is the thing that i think andrew kind of alluded to when he, and you know kind of phil mentioned before we got into the spore zone this idea of the darkness in the film but in the way in which it seems to be almost offset with a kind of hopefulness yeah. like again the world the world is ending but the world has always been ending so get over yourself it's it's a darkness that is justified. It's and the, like we're living in it right yeah, now. Yeah, and, and whatever whatever actual plagues you're um, suffering from uh, are, are, can never be as great as the, the misery that comes from um, love, the uh, blackest uh, uh, plague of all. But even that's okay because you'll probably survive it. <laughs> Very few people have been killed by love. It's... It's also funny as well that this film has such a universal appeal because if you read on, say, the circumstances in which it was made and in which it was in which it was created, it's it's also a very personal film. Um, I know you've just you've had uh, Bergman films on the two fifty before. I think you did Wild Strawberries. So we far. did indeed. Anschlemet. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, that concept, but. Um, it's like I said, one of the themes that is most often uh, highlighted in analyses of film is this idea of the silence of God. And the film is full of these, full of characters who are trying to hear God's voice in the midst of all this chaos. And it's, it's just funny be, to me because this is a film that was written and directed by uh Ingmar Bergman who was an avowed agnostic but raised strictly uh Lutheran, Lutheran. Um, but became an agnostic in later life and von Sido was an agnostic as well and agnosticism it's an interesting place in that there are people who don't necessarily believe in God but they're still open to the idea and I mean, even I in this suppo- film, you have Antonius Block, like during that confession scene, saying that, you know, the worst thing isn't not believing or believing. The worst thing is wanting to believe, but being unable but to can't. do so, which is yeah. arguably an agnostic position or something that is relatable, perhaps, to agnostics. 
that's a great scene as well because you're he's saying that to who he thinks is a priest but it's actually death uh, playing a trick on him and therein the doubt is reinforced yet again because he thought he was speaking to one person and any hope he has is kind of extinguished in that it's 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 funny the idea that he is seeking uh, knowledge and that faith isn't sufficient which which is a common uh, problem for for the for the deep thinkers of this world who 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 are told for 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 religious believers or even even um there's a lot of things that we have faith in that aren't god you know um and that institutions and, yeah. faiths, other people belief systems exactly and a lot of those are being tested right yeah now. and but the 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 thing about it is that there are certain people for whom faith is um is insufficient and there, and and i guess there there is there's as well um biblical sort of um bases um for people people with that bent to not feel that they're um um committing some kind of heresy by um by by casting doubt or by having these kind of like dark nights of the soul and the whole idea of um wanting um understanding wanting to know things and 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 a faith um uh, not being enough is something i think that that's that certain religious traditions um uh, at times and in places can be quite sympathetic too um and and it's 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 i i guess it's it, it's something that kind of spoke to me the the, the the strange thing about it as well is that the character of antonio's block is a in the in the in the world of the um of the movie um unless we are to believe that everything we see is 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 even allegorical for him he is a person who is having religious experiences constantly <laughs> and um and 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 yes is 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 saying if only i had some kind some of proof. some kind of proof you know or um if, if only uh, i knew that there was a higher power at work despite the fact i am literally playing chess with the embodiment of death exactly um, yeah which which is funny cuz <laughs> um it's that thing that um uh, um carlin newman or whatever he's called these days is he is he uh, um Carl, uh, is he he's he's is he blessed i think he newman. might be yeah um um mm. yeah but you know who we're talking about Ed, he he um he said that like if if you haven't had a religious experience you can't help but be an agnostic um you know that's um and and the the idea in this movie that there are these um that there are several characters because there there's um there's Joff as well who sees yes. visions um of the uh the virgin mary the virgin mary yeah. with the child yeah and um and has this kind of um i suppose access to the 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 um ethereal um things that that most people don't actually have the the um the privilege or the curse of 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 having um 
experience in this in this medieval world where everybody believes in God but nobody sees God. That's that's not not a problem for most people, but for people mm-hmm. um, who who seek kind of um, I guess people people who want to to truly know it and for it not just to be um, some sort of a community neurosis that they're happy to kind of go along with. Um, yeah. Yeah, because the film kind of goes back and forth on this a little bit, because you have several sequences where it seems like Antonius Block is having a break with reality, but is aware that he's having a break with reality, so he'll leave conversations with one character in order to go off and play chess with death, knowing that death is apparently within the field of view of this character, but clearly can't be seen. This is most obvious, for example, when he's talking with Maya, and he just gets up and he wanders over and plays with the chessboard there. But there's also, despite that, there's a sense in which death is a literal force within the narrative. The film treats him as something that objectively exists. Most notably, death has a conversation later on with Scat, which kind of discounts any reading of the film that invites you to see this as Antonius Block kind of treating this as an allegory or internalizing it or treating it as a metaphor and seems to suggest that death actually does wander around looking like banged Iger... I apologize. <laughs> Banged Eckerot. Um, Banged Eckerot. Banged Eckerot. Um, kind of like stalking the kind of Swedish uh, sort of, you know, uh, countryside. Like, so there is this kind of back and forth that plays throughout. It is worth noting, actually, just in terms of, because Phil mentioned this in terms of the Lutheran upbringing of Bergman as well. This was inspired by a fresca. Um, and again, you can kind of literally see that. Bergman literally put that in the film itself, um, where you have the kind of painting of the fresca. But he recalls going to um, the, it was the Tabby Kirka or the Tabby Church, which is located just north of Stockholm in Upland. Um, the church was built during the second half of the 13th century and first constructed as a square hall church, but developed over time. It's one of the churches in which the paintings of Albertus Pictor, Albert the painter in English, um, where he painted many frescoes around Sweden, but many of them were painted over. This one wasn't. This one actually survives from the medieval times. And Bergman remembers going there as a child when his father, who was a rector, who had this very impassioned style of rhetoric and very kind of impassioned teaching of kind of the Bible, and for whom Bergman actually credits his teenage infatuation with Adolf Hitler, um, in large part off the fact that he saw a lot of his father in Hitler and Hitler's sort of like very strong rhetoric and very convincing ability to give speeches. And again, Bergman's talked about how that haunted him for a lot of his life, obviously, that teenage infatuation, because obviously that's something that somebody carries with them. But he says that he remembers staring at that fresca um in the in the tabby church and seeing you know in the woods sat death playing chess with the crusader clutching the branch of a tree was a naked man with staring eyes while down below stood death sawing away to his heart's content across gentle hills death led the final dance towards the dark lands but on the other arch the holy virgin was walking in a rose garden supporting the child's faltering steps and her hands were those of a peasant woman my intention has been to paint in the same way as that medieval painter, with the same tenderness and joy. And again, you can see all of the images from the film in that fresco, uh, which is remarkable. He seems to have actually built the film out from that imagery. And that's that's what Antonius Block as well says. He he says, oh, I've 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 he he says he's seen in in well, depending on the translation of the movie, I guess, because there's a few different ones, but um that um that I've seen it kind of in in paintings and in ballads, you know, um, 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 so it, he, it's, it's almost like he's referring to the, um, to the, to the, to the same, um, kind of character that we see later in the, in, in, in the story. 
um it's 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 unfortunate as well for 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 bergman um his uh, his his personal history because i think most of us have have had some sort of a teenage infatuation that we're that we're um somewhat ashamed about yeah yeah but but maybe <laughs> like for 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 a lot of us like it it could be nickelback or um so, so something like that and and not quite adolf hitler uh yeah, yeah. It's just a very unfortunate... Look at this fresco! <laughs> it's just an unfortunate yeah, example of chronology. Had Bergman been born 10 years earlier or 10 years later, he'd be as embarrassed as the rest of us about liking rock music or sort of something like that. But it just happens he landed in the wrong place for that teenage fad to happen. It is worth noting, actually, in terms of Bergman, um, he's actually talked about how... Again, this was a film that was made on a ridiculously low budget. Um, varying accounts of the budget. Von Sidoff has talked about how it was $40,000 um, in money at the time. I think uh, Crow Peter Crowey, who's the film critic and Bergman scholar, has said it was probably closer to about 150000 but it's still a tiny amount of money, particularly compared to what was going on, uh, what was being spent in cinemas around the same time. And it looks absolutely gorgeous. There was a, um, it really does. There was a smash and grab at the, at the end of the movie. It feels like they... Uh, either um, filmed chronologically or that the final scene anyway was one of the last ones to be filmed um, they, they grabbed a whole lot of tourists um, to, to, um, to, to, to wear those sorts of um, uh, uh, you can see in the far distance uh, that they have this sort of, sh uh, uh, I guess, shackles on and are being led in some sort of a dance macabre. Dance macabre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, death. no, because those aren't those aren't the actors. The actors had already left by the time that he decided he wanted to do that. Yeah. Um. So he, it's they're actually extras, which is kind of cool as well. Um, Just in silhouette. Yeah. I mean, it was because it was because of the success of uh, Summer with Monica. Um, and by the way, Summer with Monica is not on the two fifty. So I have an little anecdote that Andrew might enjoy about this. Um. While um Bergman was making uh, Summer with Monica, he fell in love uh, with the actor Harriet Anderson, the who was working on the film with him. And he decided that they were filming on an island outside of Stockholm. So what he would do to ensure that the film continued working long past the point where they'd actually film the movie, he would actually scratch the negative that he sent off to the lab to get developed. And then they come back and they'd say, oh, the, the negative you sent us, it's no good. And he's like, oh, well, I guess we have to stay on this idyllic island together, the two of us, and film this movie again. Oh, what are the odds? Because um, apparently Bergman was quite the horn dog, which I, I kind of appreciate. Why did you say that I'd appreciate that? I thought you kind of would. Kind of like a, kind of like <laughs> I don't know if I should be <laughs> insulted. <laughs> Speaking of the playful <laughs> sides, um, I love John Squire. Oh, jo uh, yes. He, um, he, John's. He ain't. No, I thought you would. Go in nowhere. He ain't go nowhere. You can't be stopped now. Bad boy for life. He's um Yeah, oh absolutely. Yeah. Like he's the one who's just ploughing on ahead while Luck sits there. Uh, gleeful nihilism. He's such a absolutely. gleeful nihilist. It's great. He's very much he's embraced the fact that nothing matters and it's fantastic. It's just it's basically his position. Terrific. Yeah. Well it's another philosophical position to go up against Bluck. Um like when I was saying earlier about the idea of the silence of God, there's I've always maintained uh, that like we're in an age where we have a lot of uh, supposed Christian films and they're, when I say that people tend to think of things like like you said Left Behind or things like God's Not Dead 
and they're all kind of catering to this Christian perse- persecution complex that seems to be very in vogue in parts of the US. Um, but I think Bergman is one of the great Christian filmmakers, even though he was an agnostic himself, because he deals with this idea of faith as belief, even in the presence of doubt. And that's a very powerful kind of train of thought in Christian thinking, because it acknowledges the the fallibility of human beings. Like, you know, we want to be better people, and whether that's through religious belief or doing right by our fellow man or by some combination thereof. But films like The Seventh Seal or Winter Light, say, um, there are films that acknowledge that people do what they can in their circumstances. But considering the extreme circumstances in this film, it finds that they may be wanting, but that has to be, that that's understandable because they are so, because, because of that fallibility, like they're caught in extremes they have no control over. So if there are lapses in their character or their judgment, it's it's hard to expect there to be anything else because it's sometimes comes down to life or death situations. And it, it's 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 an incredible thing as well because it, it, like this whole idea of um, kind of from Saint Paul of at first we see through through a glass darkly um, and then more clearer. Um, the idea of the um, medieval up until uh, modern times um, struggle with the um, with with all of these questions, like it would with um, whether it's um, Descartes or or Hegel trying to um, or 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 even Nietzsche trying 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 to bring some sort of a um, a rationality to 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 what um, um, is is a very kind of dire uh, um, situation, I guess, of 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 being of being left to try and figure it out. You know, like like it, um, in some sense, in some sense, knowing that there is something, but also. But you can't you can't work out what exactly it is or how you're meant yeah. to respond to it. And yeah, and and yeah. and like the struggle struggle to make rational sense of 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 the world. And I suppose that that, that like um, perhaps there is no God. What really? But what religion does for um, what I suppose all religions have in common is kind of identifying what the um problem is that we're all suffering from because everybody has this kind of sense that something's not quite right and and delivering some sort of a um a a, a remedy um uh, to that problem now we have contemporary kind of non-religious versions of these things as well but um but that's what it is but and 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 then the the, the the struggle to um, to ground that in something that can't be shook, um, which 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 is which is what what Antonius is kind of um, struggling with, and he doesn't want to die until he knows what um, until he has his yeah, answer. Yeah, 
Yeah. And this Descartes is something that didn't is, want to die, uh, actually. He was really obsessed with um, uh, all sorts of kind of methods of, um, of trying to keep himself alive. He, he became, a, a, I think, tar water was one thing that he got very interested in because it was meant to kind of be some sort of elixir. Um, yeah. But they, they, well, it, it. I mean, even today in Silicon Valley, you have people who are investing in like cryonics and cryogenics and stuff like yeah. that, and looking at AI uploading. Yeah, Ray like Ray yeah. Kurzweil has about a bucket of um, of pills every single day to um, <laughs> uh, as 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 a way of um, kind of uh, preserving yeah prolonging his 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 life kind of indefinitely he's he he'll only be happy if he's kind of you know hit by a bus or if it's a um we we have not yet found the cure to uh 25 stab wounds in the back (laughs) in the back well we're up to 15 (laughs) hey uh but it's it like it's all comes down to this idea of how do you resist these forces like i suppose in particular death like how do you fight it the the basis of cartesian uh philosophy is that idea cogito ergo sum if i think therefore i am um it is reminiscent of a line that block says early on in the film when he's sitting down to play death in chess he says as long as i resist you i live it's about finding some kind of driving force that keeps you going it's and it seems to be this idea of thinking through and questioning, of asking this question um, that seems to propel people through life. Um, it's And it's a theme that comes up all the time in cinema. You you quoted St. Paul there, Andrew, and the, you said Through a Glass Darkly, which was a Another film, Bergman movie. A Bergman film that he, a film that Bergman and Max von Sydow made together a few years later. Uh, you see it all the time in uh, other films, like um, another Berg, another uh, von Sydow film, uh, The Exorcist. That's uh, the crux of that film is questioning the forces that are at work inside this possessed girl and how it, it her, that girl, her body and her soul are becoming a battleground between the forces of evil and uh, forces of good. Yeah, and, and uh, but even more, and the and the, even more the religious crisis of 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 um, as well of the uh, of the, uh, uh, the father. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, but even more recently, you get an example: um, Paul Schrader's film First Reformed, which many people see more or less as a remake of Bergman's Winter Light not least because it investigates the same ideas of a priest who is facing a crisis of faith even but he's trying to see them perhaps as opportunities to uh, restore his faith and the faith of his flock albeit against insurmountable odds but that's kind of what Bergman does so well it's watching people trying to get answers to these great these greater questions about God and the self and your place in the world and more often than not, unfortunately, some of the characters will succumb. And so it is with the seventh seal. Uh, at the end of the film, some people, some characters live and others go to die, albeit in a kind of joyful way. 
Well, I mean, again, like, it, it's worth noting that as much as you have Block kind of trying to fight off death or trying to postpone death or trying to delay death, the film itself seems to treat that as a folly. Like, we pointed out John's yep. The Squire, who is, again, this wonderfully cynical, very resolved to how things are, no-nonsense, shoot-from-the-hip kind of person. He's the one who calls out, for example, Raval, you know, the kind of the, the thief or the mm. kind of the abbot yeah, and... who is responsible for convincing Block to launch these men on this crusade that caused so much death and destruction. He's the one who kind of, like, even seems to, despite the fact he's a squire, seems to eagerly and repeatedly mock Block's faith. And he's like, look at her eyes. They're empty. They're empty because she sees nothing. There's no point in any of this. Our crusade was so dumb that only a true idealist could have thought it up. Now, to be fair, there are moments where perhaps it goes a little bit too far when he's like, when he stops the, the mute woman, he's like, I could have raped you, but I've grown tired of that kind of love. It grows dull in the end. I, also, my well, wife is probably dead and I need a cleaner. The uh, ref- it, the film certainly puzzles Raval as kind of the worst of all kind of impulses towards, um, first of all, religiosity, and then succumbing to the nihilistic tendencies. Well, yeah, hypocrisy. He's the one who... Absolute hypocrisy. Like, he convinced Bluck to go off on the Crusades, never doing it himself, though. And then by the uh, later on, like you say... Well, literally praying on the dead. Rape women. Pray, praying on the dead. Uh, but he does pay the price at the end of the film, we do learn, because he's suffering from, um, from right. leprosy. Yeah, presumably, from, plague, presumably from the this equipment that he sold. No, it's actually quoting John's. John's there, who despite seeming like a lovable rogue, at one point does go, does threaten to kind of rape the, the young maiden. It's like, actually, I've grown tired of rape. Rape's not really my my kind of buzz right now. My wife is probably dead, though. I could use a cleaner. Um, which, again, mm. is one of those weird it's moments. Not, of it's not, really it's not how, say, comedy. a Darren Mooney might approach that situation. Fair, fair <laughs> point. That's a fair point. Um I, I do love those kind of side characters in this film. Like they're a kind of a spectrum outside of Block and the central family of how you can react to them. So you have. By the way, I'm not suggesting that I would. Thanks. We wouldn't have said this. My my book of chat-up lines. Yeah, like I have a knife. Um, um, yeah, Bergman chat-up lines. God, there's a niche. Uh, but. Um, so what I was going to say, yeah, so... And you were wondering, Andrew, why I suggested you might like that story about the filming of my summer with Monica. Um, I will not be slandered. By myself, apparently. Anyway, sorry, um, Phil, you were saying. Um, so, um, yeah, so you've got quite a broad pers- uh, range of characters outside uh, Block and our central family uh, who offer different perspectives on how you can react to the world around you when it seems to be falling apart like you say you have Rival who at, by the end of the film it, it pays the price for his hypocrisies but as well as that you have uh, you have the squire you have uh, Jans who like you say he's embraced this nihilism um, but he's not like you say there's that point where he says yeah I'm not so much into the raping and pillaging anymore it's it's almost like uh <laughs> When people hear about nihilistic characters in film, I think the one they probably always think of is uh, the Big Lebowski. Stormare in the Big Lebowski. Oh, he doesn't believe in anything. He's a nihilist. He just falls asleep in the pool. <laughs> I think that's kind of yawns really when we meet him in the film. He's like wandering around and like, eh, it is what it is. But as well as that, you also have um, Scat, the uh, the manager uh, of the uh, traveling troupe, and he is. Uh, like he is somebody who is nominally supposed to be in charge of a group, but at the end of the film is found wanting. And he's 
the one character who we actually do see be pursued and captured by death at the end. He's the chap who and death I, I absolutely out of the adore tree. that sequence where death shows up with a fecking like Saul. I kind of love <laughs> like you you imagine again, this is the thing when you talk yeah, about the, the film, side wasn't do the side wasn't doing it for me. I need you dead now. I'm gonna cut down the tree. But again, it's like that's the thing when you talk about the film and you talk about it being an art house film, the stereotypical art house film, like even death is having so much fun where he's just sawing through the tree <laughs> and he kind of stops to take a question, but he's like, Okay, now if you'll excuse me, I have to get back to killing you now. It's such a delightful little moment. It's such a strange it? little segue. It's wonderful. It's dry. Yeah. But he's very funny. But, well, if there's one per, like if there's one person who should know this whole th- this whole scenario in and out, it's death. Like he's the only person who's going to profit from all of this in the end. He's the only person who's going to get what he wants, i.e., more souls, more people dead. Um, interesting enough, Bengt Ekerod, who played him, he was a Swedish uh, theater director and actor. He adapted um, or he directed the play uh, on which uh, the Seven Seal is based, uh, which Bourbon's is wood painting. Play. Trammeling, wood painting. He adapted that for the stage, I think, a couple of years before the film was made. So I could just imagine that Bergman came along, saw this, came along to him and said, you directed my play. You're going to be my death. Yeah. I could <laughs> just imagine saying, Enkroth being like, yeah, cool. Um, it, it is worth noting that, yes, there have been four official productions of wood painting in Sweden. Um, the first was actually directed by Bergman for the radio, Radio Tetern. Um, he also directed one himself in Malamo City Theatre as well. Um, it was apparently uh, focused on the squire, um, which is interesting. It was a much shorter play and it was focused on the character of Jans. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, a yeah, lot less kind of opportunity to get into more existential stuff there as well, which is, again, it's worth noting in terms of the film's production. He's, well, like was... he's like a Stoppard character, Jans. Like his, his, his wit and his kind of searing kind of um, uh, uh, insight into commentary. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's very, it's it like it's it's yeah, it's right up my alley anyway. And like, is what one of, one of the most enjoyable things about the movie, and that like like saying something. Yeah. And Bergman has kind of again, this gets back to what Phil was saying about the idea that what the film is is it's these characters all meditating on the same essential question from a variety of different perspectives and looking at it from different angles and approaching it in their own ways. Bergman himself has called it an oratoria, which is about several voices asking the same question. And the film itself is very consciously, even though it's obviously an adaptation of a stage play and it is quite cinematic in terms of its storytelling, it's also very consciously and very cleverly repeatedly reminding the audience that it is a play it seems to reference Hamlet quite frequently there's a couple of references to Elsinore in there it's made me wonder where it is not that it matters like but (laughs) yeah yeah. it feels like there's suggestions that um, of of Denmark but this is very much not Denmark anybody who's been in to Denmark will 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 not recognize any of of landmarks yeah, or yeah. anything that well, no like the, just be, be, because well, of how flat yeah. uh, uh, Denmark is like you know which yeah. which this isn't i think uh, it's all very Scandinavian, as Stephen Fry might put it elsinore it's elsinore is in eastern denmark so it's probably um I would imagine Block would have had to travel through there on his way back home to Sweden. Yeah, I suppose it's close to Malmo. Um, yeah. uh, is it? Is, is it on Jutland? Um, 
is this on Jockey? I'm going to pull up a map just so we can actually uh, was, figure this out. Was there out. a big bridge then like there is now? <laughs> Industrial scale. That was the real crusade. Um, that's that's kind of like, that was the deleted opening scene was him kind of wandering towards this bridge on the seaside. It's like, no, 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 we'll take the scenic route. Uh, but in terms of... How- oh, no, it's, it is literally just a, a short a short distance. Uh, there's only a short gulf between Helsinore and uh, and the Swedish Oh, great. A hop, skip, and a jump. Good. A, a hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's uh, no, just it, like you say, it's, it's very... It's like an eastern Denmark. It is just, just a short hop across. So... Um, that makes sense. That, that's probably the most concrete answer we're going to have to anything in this podcast after we've been talking about ideas of death and God and the persistence of mankind. Where's Elsinore? Ah, yeah, there we, we go. We can actually tell you where Elsinore Pin is. On that. But again, like you have even things like the kind of players, the, the emphasis on the traveling troupe and the show within a show and the performance within a performance. It's all very much like Hamlet. You have the skull mask that kind of scat takes out, uh, which reminds you of, you know, the last pure, last poor Yorick. You know, the famous sort of sequence from Hamlet where they use a skull. And that, again, is juxtaposed with the sequence in which the penitents are marching through the town square. And they also have a skull as well. And you get this kind of wonderful parallel between the idea of the performers um, and the church as well. Because you have constantly throughout, there's this idea that like faith and particularly the sort of faith that's practiced by people like Ravel and people that's practiced by the church. Because, again, as much as Bergman, you know, kind of was raised in the Lutheran tradition, you know, if you look at things like, say, Fanny and Alexander, there's a real skepticism there about the organized aspects of religion the film repeatedly seems to suggest an equivalence between the players who are performing these body plays for the amusement of the populace and the kind of like the preachers who are coming in and talking and lecturing and kind of performing art and kind of lecturing people on how they're all going to die and how humanity is kind of doomed and that's very literal in the juxtaposition of the two skulls that we mentioned but even the sequence where joff and maya's routine is interrupted by the kind of like the penitents wandering through town and the kind of the sequence of jesus on the cross which gives you this big sort of very much rhetorical kind of speech about the nature of mankind so it's kind of interesting that you have that juxtaposition kind of happening there as well and again it's worth noting mia and joff they are short scandinavian names joff is short for joseph mia is short for mary in case you don't yeah in case you don't get what they're getting at there Hmm. But even sequences like later on where block sits down with them and has the strawberries and the milk Again, that's presented as something that is almost a religious sequence. It's like the drinking of the wine at communion. It's presented as this sort of like bringing together of people, which I find kind of fascinating. It's this kind of sense that, you know, in the film that you can have relig- you can have belief in spirituality without having religion around it, which is an interesting yeah. kind of juxtaposition there. Well, that's that it's that kind of juxtaposition that seems to define Bergman as a writer. Like he uh, he always marked his scripts with the letters S D G, which represent which stands for Soli Deo Gloria for the glory of God. Like the the influence is always there in his work, no matter what he might have, no matter what his personal relationship with God was. But there was always the influence there. I was just um, thinking about yeah the the um, the balance of um, of the movie. Not even not 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 just in terms of um, like it being very um, uh, but very serious and 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 very funny, but but I guess also being very ugly and very beautiful. Yeah, um, with it, and 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 I think uh, Ber- Bergman 
um, has a very um, efficient kind of shorthand for for beauty, which is um, I mean in part, but it, it's 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 uh, it's Mia, and and I suppose the relationship between Mia and and Joff and her child Mikhail as well. Um, yeah, um, it it is. It, it it it's it's very idyllic um and the 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 kind of the idea that um that that there isn't i suppose an inconsistency that that there that there isn't some sort of like essential um uh kind of mode of of human existence that that we're all kind of um uh, curse to take part in that there is that there that there mm. is that there is this beauty um to be had um as well um that the, that the did like you know be, be, because for 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 simple people um like for example um uh, plod or no sorry plod plog the plog, yeah he he, his life is full of worries, and I, I guess John's advice is like, you know what you should do, just don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but but, but yeah. he may be an nihilist, but he might have a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of um, um, he's struggling for the words. He's like, life is so. He's like mad. Yes, yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, I already, it's all good in the hood. I already thought about it, and I already have the answer for you. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, Joff and Maya, actually, it's probably worth worth noting. And again, Andrew kind of alluded to that, that balance of kind of beauty and cynicism in the film. And again, you've already watched the trailer, so there's literally no point in saying this. But one of the things that I really like about the movie is that it's kind of what Phil mentioned there, which is the idea of kind of struggling against death. But the film's understanding that Block's struggle against death is completely pointless. There's no way that he's going to beat death in the game of chess. In fact, actually, a lot of his attempts are very pathetic. Like the bit where he knocks over the chessboard is this ridiculously inelegant, oh, oh, oops, never mind, guess you can't kill me now. And Death's like, no, 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 I remember where all the pieces are. But the, the whole point of the film ends up being not... Antonius Block outwitting death or playing death to a stalemate or surviving death or living forever. It's him coming to this realization and it's the conversation that he has in the church with death where he says, and again, wonderful Bergman dialogue here. No man can face living death knowing that everything is nothingness. My whole life has been nothing but futile wandering and pursuits. A great deal of talk without meaning. It's all been for nothing. I say that without bitterness or self-reproach knowing that most men's lives are the same. But here's the thing where you get the little kernel of goodness, the little kernel of hope, and the little kind of bright sunshine at the end of the movie. I want to use my reprieve for one meaningful deed. And the film, and again, the film skewers Block repeatedly, even at the climax when death arrives and he's praying. And Johns is pointing out like how incredibly futile and pointless it is for Block to be unable to look death in the face as he comes to collect them. Like, for all of that, the film does allow Block this one minor victory of rescuing 
you know, Joff and Maya, of saving mm. Joff and Maya from death's attention, yeah. for distracting death while they ride off. Um, and again, there's something kind of vaguely hopeful in that, even if I do wonder if in doing that, he accidentally ended up leading death directly back to his waiting wife. That's the arguments, yeah. Like how, like, Block has saved some lives and has possibly endangered others. So, yeah, on balance. I think, yeah. I think as well, um, I wonder if it's not the point also that, um, that death is kind of a a necessary half of a dichotomy and that's uh, kind of regeneration and birth and life is the other side of that you know because they, they, that's the kind of the the uh, contrast here is that in spite in spite of um um if you don't uh, if 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 you don't get busy dying you can get, um, uh, get busy living, um, which which is which is which is what um, uh, Maya and Joff and Michaela are doing, um, and that that happens all the time. And if you, I suppose, if you, if um, like, if you want to kind of look at nature, you look at the way things break down um, and kind of you know become um uh, compost and while 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 there is a kind of like a tendency towards towards entropy every you know um every age has new uh, hope yeah and uh, yeah whether literally or philosophically yeah. the idea that your body's going to break down and provide nutrients for plants those plants will be eaten by animals and those animals will have lives in return and that sort of stuff but even the idea that yes Society and changes so involves. we are all connected in the great circle of life. Yeah, I mean, who said that again? Uh, it is worth noting, like Bergman has talked about how the Seventh Seal is a movie that was largely cathartic for him. It helped him work hmm. through his own issues and his own anxieties about death. He said that after he made the Seventh Seal, he never really had that same hanging, oppressive fear of death afterwards, which is kind of very heartening and very therapeutic. Because again, as I mentioned, like when they did wood painting, after he wrote wood painting, um, he wanted to produce a movie adaptation of it, but there was no sense that it was profitable because people kind of read the script and they were like, what, so you're gonna, you know, it's gonna be play chess with death? How is this gonna work? What's anybody, why is anybody gonna watch a movie, you know, where you spend 96 minutes playing chess with death and talking about the futile nature of existence? But apparently... He had been successful enough with his two previous films, Summer with Monica and Smiles with Summer Night, uh, with Smiles with Summer Night winning the Cannes Jury Prize and performing well financially, that his producer, mm. Carl Anders uh, Daimling, signed off on the script for The Seventh Seal with a much tighter budget, a much smaller budget. Apparently, he filmed it over the summer because of the way that filming worked in Scandinavia um, during the time, and being honest a little bit now as well, because of the way in which daylight works there. Um, you can only film during the summer, you edit during autumn, and you release in the winter. So a lot of Scandinavian films traditionally would come out around Christmas time, uh, because that's the only time when you would have been shooting in the summer for light. They shot this over 37 days uh, on an incredibly uh, compressed timescale. And apparently, like even talking about it, Bergman himself has said that he continues to be astounded that a film that him and a couple of friends made, that it was really just a little film that me and my friends made one summer. It's how he describes um, the Seventh Seal, which is kind of astounding to think of the kind of success of it, uh, which is, is remarkable. Um, and yet it turns out to be this huge kind of signature calling card for him. Worth noting as well, very quickly in terms of talking about Bergman and Bergman, so Sweden's complicated relationship with Bergman. Bergman 
was a huge success internationally. He's generally regarded as one of the great directors of kind of world cinema um, and generally more respected overseas uh, than he was in Switzerland, sorry, in, Sw- in Sweden. Hopefully more than he was in Switzerland as well, but we don't well, know. Switzerland sure. were neutral um, on... <laughs> on the subject. Of, yeah. <laughs> um, but basically he'd come to be seen as one of the old guard um, in Sweden. And he was actually often came under criticism from kind of fellow critics and from fellow directors. So, for example, Olaf Langerkrantz, the influential editor of the Swedish broadsheet Dagens Neiter, uh, said that I'm ashamed to have seen Bergman's movies. One critic wrote of Sawdust and Tinsel that he refused to, and I quote, perform an ocular inspection of Mr. Bergman's vomit. Bo Winderberg, <laughs> who after Mr. Bergman is Sweden's most successful director since the silent film era, wrote a pamphlet in 1960 containing a number of accusations against Bergman, including what one expects with growing impatience from this brilliant technician and director of actors is for him to move on, to grow tired of his role as our Dalla horse to the world. We all expect of a Dalla horse that it should look like a Dalla horse and satisfying that demand would probably mean death for any artist in a long, in the long run as well. Um, famously, I think Peter Crowey, who discussed kind of going to Sweden to meet Bergman and discussing Bergman's work with Swedes, talked about how one of the responses he got from Swedish film critics was, oh, of course you foreigners love Bergman. You don't have to listen to the dialogue. Um, which was quite uh, quite a scathing <laughs> comment as well. Bergman was famously investigated by the Inland Revenue um, in the middle of the 60s and literally chased out of the country as well, which was kind of shocking as well. Didn't he try so uh, challenging them to a game of chess? Uh, <laughs> but again, it, it's kind maybe of, it's, it's not as effective that... as maybe you actually have to be good at chess. <laughs> in order for this to win yeah unfortunately he lost but again there's kind of something interesting there in the idea of Bergman as a kind of a, an, a director who found his appeal kind of abroad now to be fair there's been some evidence that Sweden is proud of him has rehabilitated him he appears on the 200 krona note uh, with, including a shot of him working on the seven seal for example um, but it's kind of interesting how he, he has been embraced abroad and I think there's something interesting that Richard Brody said which is that What's interesting about Bergman kind of being embraced by American audiences in the 50s is that he was a director working in Sweden, which was a country that was largely seen as being politically neutral, highly prosperous, very middle class, very robust kind of social security net, very high rate of happiness, a country where everything seemed to be going as well as it could go. And Bergman was kind of this author of these really melancholy, very reflective, very downbeat sort of studies about like, well, why is life so, why is life suffering sometimes? Like, hey, why doesn't it all make sense? Hey, go to Denmark. Um, <laughs> if you're gonna talk like that, you know, yeah, I'm sure it does. Um, um like, I know Lars von Trier was a lot later, but um, yeah, um, what do you call them? Is it like Manifesto Forty Eight or something? Dogma Ninety Five. Dogma Ninety Five. There we go. But I do, I do love that the sort of Richard Brody's perhaps rather pointed observation that like what made Bergman comfortable for middle-class audiences in the States was like, well, if this guy living in this country can feel bad about his life, maybe I shouldn't feel so bad about feeling so bad about my life as well. (laughs) Which I find kind of interesting. Um, Again, it's just, he's, he spoke to those doubts and those uh, questions that everybody has, no matter what kind of standard of life they have. Yeah. And it's, it's a great movie for any kind of, um, snob who likes to kind of you know rub their chin like 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 we've been doing <laughs> yeah. right here right here yeah. 
this is made for us guys right here yeah it absolutely is yeah um it's it's a much it's probably going to be a much more profound sounding discussion than something like when we talk about warrior <laughs> um i say as as we get on but um all right then so is there anything else we'll talk about anything that we haven't discussed already in the context of this episode? i love anything you want to talk i about? love the kind of um it reminded me of cannery row the uh scene of joff uh waking up and doing every single thing that a man does when they wake you know like yeah scratch yourself yawn you know uh farce um like um you know um probably stick his finger in his ear um the whole the whole gamut of um of human experience captured <laughs> on this camera yeah <laughs> well, well again it's not dishonest like you say these are the things that most people do of a morning yeah or most well, we get to like. kind of watch um, them do it um oh yeah Ber- bergman knows what we're here for well no no yeah. but it, it is a celebration of life and again that's what joff and mia kind of do where you have them contrasted with the kind of self-importance and meditation of kind of block this kind of self-involved obsession that block has and to be fair to block at least he's kind of self-aware i love the moment where he stops with me and he's like i'm in terrible company myself uh, but like the fact that like Block is like <laughs> sitting there watching a woman being burnt to death, and his big question is, could could you call Satan over here? Because I, I really want to ask him a question about God. I also again love the fact that like his chess games with death, it's like meeting Satan would not be enough for Block. It's like no, no, no. I want to meet Satan and I want to ask him about God. It's basically I want to talk to your manager. But I kind of the <laughs> the contrast that you have between that and the simple pleasures of Joff and Mia, where you have that kind of that stretching and that kind of banal existence, like, that very ordinary. It's like when I met John Giles and asked him, gave him like a piece of paper and a pen, and said, "Do you think you'd be able to get me Liam Brady's autograph?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and he said, oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Which was the right response. <laughs> of course it is. Did you expect any other No, reaction? I was hoping for that. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> I would have felt bad if he had been like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And then looked sad. Like, um, I, I, I would have. <laughs> you are just, you are young, aren't you? you? I would have felt guilty. Also worth noting, actually, apparently Bergman, um, despite the fact that he did have a long and kind of long lasting relationship with many of his actors, including Von Sidoff, apparently it was remarked that you don't say no to Bergman. If you turn down a role in one of his films, he would apparently not work with you again. That's what broke up the relationship with Max Von Sidoff. At one point in the 70s, Bergman offered Von Sidoff a role in one of his films. Von Sidoff happened to be busy. And that was apparently the end of their relationship. Um, in spite of his handwritten letter. Yeah, no matter how nice that letter happened to be. Um, maybe that's why he started writing letters. Maybe. Hmm. I love I love the line um, uh, from, I, I think it's um, um, it's uh, Jonas, isn't it? Um, um, who says, um, when, um, when Joff is, a- is asking him, kind of like, what part am I going to play? Like... Um, because because Jonas is going to have um, this um, skull, he's going to he's going to be playing death, and he's like, do I look well? And he's like, oh, what 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 am I going to be? And it's like, oh, you you have the human role. And then he says, it's not a great part, is it? <laughs> but the the it's a very kind of like a funny sort of um, 
a comment about what the what the movie is is kind of getting at. Um, yeah, it just kind of it it works. Um, it works well. Right. You know, it's it's kind of witty. And we haven't talked too much about the direction, but Bergman's work here is fantastic. There's a number of really great sequences, even outside of kind of those iconic, the design of death, but even like the chess game and stuff like that. But even the sequence with the flagellation, where the kind of yeah. where the, the penitents come into town and kind of they drown out the soundtrack and the camera goes these weird low kind of Dutch angles, ironically, for a Swedish film. And kind of they move out and they kind of fade and they almost kind of disappear into the landscape. Again, it does feel... Even watching it, it feels like something not quite like a horror movie, but like a kind of a fairy tale. It's like something that isn't meant to be entirely literally representative of what you're seeing. Bergman's use of editing is is absolutely fantastic and kind of stunning. It's a beautiful film to look at. Bergman himself, I think, very famously resisted using color until quite late in his career, even after it was introduced, because he very much liked the kind of stark contrast that you see. And again, you see it happen throughout his work. There's those wonderful shots of two actors talking where one of them will be in profile. Nobody can do as much with a profile shot as Bergman does. And kind of one character or characters are addressing one another, but they're not looking at each other as well. Again, any number of examples in in this this film as well that the confession scene is absolutely stunning to look at sorry Andrew. well was was there a was there the same resistance around aspect ratio as well or that'd be a question i defer to our expert on that Who? Mr. Me? um i don't know <laughs> being perfectly honest um i imagine yeah. i suppose yeah i i would it's, imagine that's one of those quiz questions darren spikes the ball there <laughs> it's yeah, one darren of those, spikes the ball. those uh those quiz questions it's like what was um what was Ingmar, yeah what was ingmar bergman's opinion of um of uh, of aspect ratios come on you know this one <laughs> yeah. yeah um i should think that he probably went for the aspect ratios that afforded him the best opportunities. Like you say, um, his use of black and white photography, he uh, appreciated the stark contrast because it allowed him to work with uh, certain setups as he liked, like, you know, two people in conversation but not looking at each other. I imagine he probably appreciated a narrow aspect ratio for that because it forced the two faces into a yeah. tighter frame. Close proximity, yeah. So... um that's my take on it. And it also resembles a chessboard mm. as well. Exactly. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't do you, discussed? Do you ever cease asking, Darren? <laughs> <laughs> he just wants to make sure we've got all the bases covered. Uh, <laughs> considering... I need to know, Andrew. Nothing escapes you. I need you. to know. So, <laughs> do any, do it any either of you uh, have a favorite reference to the Seventh Seal that isn't Bill and Ted? I do like Bill and Ted. Everybody like, does. Lot. It yeah. is good. Then, uh, like Beethoven's in there as well. Um, it it it's it's great. Um, and the the the, the 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 way the way they play like Battleship and um, yeah, and Twister and Twister, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and again, I feel bad that you kind of took Bill and Ted's bogus journey off the board there, so to speak, just knocking it over. And I'm like, no, 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 I remember Bill and Ted's bogus journey was there. It's okay, Phil, I got you. <laughs> uh, but also the last action yeah. hero. Um, yeah. It's use of Ian McKellen. And again, it's great that the last action hero has been. I like the last action hero. That's like a movie that people say. It's been rehabilitated. Oh, very much so. Like having this idea that it's not good. It is. It's daft fun. 
Yeah. And, and spot yeah. the cameo yeah. or spot the reference is great yeah. for that. And again, it's one of those things where it feels like we finally caught up with The Last Action Hero. Because again, at a time of release, it was a bomb. It was critically reviled. But it seems like in recent years, there's been a genuine push. And I'm happy to see it of people going, actually... This is kind of brilliant. Ahead of its time, um, I think is the phrase we're looking yes, for here. Yes, uh, very much so. And what about yourself, Phil? What would be your own reference, given that you asked the question? Uh, you find a lot of references in films Woody Allen. It's a great scene in Love and Death where a character dances with death, like actually properly dances. This um, is his, that's uh, the Tolstoy parody, is it, if I remember correctly? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, but uh, his films are, his earlier films are rife with uh, Again, he is a huge Bergman fan. Um, and again, you've got to get, yeah. get the sense of that with the casting of Von Sidoff in Anna and Her Sisters. There's very much like, a, I get That's to right. play with the actual, get to play with an actual Bergman toy now, uh, is the sense of that. Yeah. But then again, what director isn't a fan of Bergman? Is there, there's scarcely a major director out there who won't claim some influence from the films of Ingmar Bergman. Uh, and this one would, that is still has to be one of the most influential all right i think that's a good note on which to wrap up um so what i'm gonna do then oh i i did you actually remember something you want to talk um, about andrew after i did ask i did this is why i did ask (laughs) i need to know no 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 i i did to answer your question and uh um i was gonna say Lawrence olivia's hamlet but it was made before (laughs) um (laughs) Um, it was made before uh, the seventh. Yeah, about year. a decade before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and by the way, I, I, your 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 next question is like, do we have any plugs? Um, and I'm going to slowly say, Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. <laughs> that was quite an excellent segue. Thank you, Andrew. Um, also, in terms of food waste as well, because I'm not entirely sure that yes. uh, Scat yeah. eats that chicken. Um, he doesn't eat all of that. Chicken. No, I don't think he does. Yeah, I think he's busy. Um, uh, anyway, never mind. At least one person enjoyed himself in all of this, in all of the misery uh, of that world. Um, but yes, uh, and in terms of inappropriate smoking, I guess the witch kind of counts, right? Ha! <laughs> um, but yes. Um, I suppose she does. I love that you're taking this mantle. <laughs> <laughs> There's the incense as well. And I suppose the monks with the hoods over their heads, so you only see their mouths, kind of like oh, Robocop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Andrew doesn't have to do any of this anymore. It's fantastic. Um, but yes, it is. that is our obligatory Robocop reference. It only took it only took the guts of 200 episodes, but we got there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, then. So wrapping up, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask people to we ask our guests to recommend something for this. There's something they're enjoying at the moment, something that might bring people joy. It could be something related to this movie. It could be something completely unrelated, just something that makes you happy at this moment in time that listeners might appreciate hearing. Now, Andrew, I have no idea what you're going to mention. Uh, I can't possibly imagine what it might be. So I'm, I'm going to recommend a, a movie that I used to watch when I was young. It's um, it was on VHS. It's Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. It's from 1948, almost ten years before <laughs> um, the, the, the Seventh Seal. Now, I, 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 the, um, my mother was studying literature, um, and so she was reading all of these things. But occasionally, um, there would be a um, a VHS. Uh, which were which were better than books because you didn't have to read them. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Unless they were foreign on. films, in which case you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, something I'm enjoying currently, um, 
because I have to admit I haven't seen Laurence Olivier's Hamlet probably since I was like eight or nine years of age um, is um, The Night Manager uh, by uh, John le Carre. It does remind me of working in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's 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 terrific. It's 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 about. Um, have you seen the a, series, um, the adaptation starring Hugh Laurie? I have. I have not. I would. I would. I think I would very much like to see it. And speaking speaking of speaking of Hugh Laurie, um, he likes John le Carre so much that he wrote his own um, book. Now it's difficult to find, but it's called The Gum Cellar. Um, it's funny because it, it's um, the character he plays in, in the Night Manager is a um, is an arms dealer. Uh, dealer, the worst man in the world. Yeah, um, but no, it, it's 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 terrific. I won't I won't say too much about it. Um, I'm just beginning, in it, but I'm a big fan of Jean Le Carre. Um, yeah. All right, and Phil, what would you recommend for listeners? Well, besides all the Bergman films that we've mentioned uh, today, uh, Winterlight, Summer with Monica, um, all great. Uh, check them out. Um, but I would also uh, give a shout out. I watched something very recently and it was for the first time in a very, very long time. Uh, something which, like The Seven Seal, it's a bit more modern, but it has a, a certain arty rep. Uh, kind of references to films past and black and white photography and all of that uh, but it comes with its own kind of iconography and has been in the news recently because this director has confirmed that he's readapting this particular film for TV. Um, it's Irma Vep, which is Olivia Sayes' 1996 movie about a remake of um, the 1915 silent Les Vampires um, and it's basically about the clash of egos uh, on the on the set of this remake. It's it's one of the great movies about making movies. Um, it's a it's basically a love letter to its star Maggie Chung. Um, it's replete with references to history to French and world cinema. Uh, Jean Pierre Leo, who of course we discussed on the Four Hundred Blows, he's in there as the the director of this film, and. Um, it's fun. It's sexy. It's uh, it's great, and it's very French. So um, if you think that's up your alley, uh, check it out. It's on Blu-ray. It's uh, it's just a lot of fun. Whew, I am very excited that you didn't say Guy Ritchie Snatch, which also got a TV adaptation recently starring Rupert Grint. I thought that's where no. you're going. Really? Yeah, it's a, it's oh, on have... crack. Is it the Crack Network or something like that? It's some sort of uh, network that you've never Rupert heard of. Rupert Grint. Yep. Heaven forbid. Yep. Anyway, sorry. What were you going to say, Andrew? Before I cut you off, he looks genuinely. I also shocked. recommend. I also recommend potatoes with um, uh, salt on them. It's something I've enjoyed. <laughs> we can. Quite a bit we're, we're recording this via Skype. We can actually see him eating. Yeah. The yeah. the camera placement, his framing is worthy of Bergman, um, to be absolutely honest. Um, but yes, <laughs> in terms of recommendations, three very quick ones from me. So I'm going to start with uh, the Criterion uh, service. If you are in the States, it is very worth subscribing to. It is a fantastic service that contains many, many, many films, uh, some of which are important world films, including films like we've talked about The Seventh Seal, but they also have a full Bergman season as well. But also lots of really great, really odd curiosities. So they had like a wonderful Godzilla season a couple of weeks ago. 
That was very, very worth checking out. Again, all these Japanese films, including subtitles, audio tracks, but they also tend to have a lot of the production sort of, uh, you know, elements that you associate with the Criterion Collection. So commentaries, behind the scenes interviews and kind of discussions, debates, roundtables and kind of conversations about the films as well. So if you are at all interested in cinema, I would wholeheartedly recommend signing yourself up for the Criterion Collection. Oh, and if you're in the UK and have a UK bank account, um, try try to BFI. Yes. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. They they and they 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 have like contemporary stuff as well. Um, like we we recently watched um, um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and they they have stuff like um, Celine Sciamma's um, uh, Tomboy. Oh. Um, okay. Yeah. And yeah, they probably have water lilies too. But yeah, they, they, if you're ever looking at Netflix and thinking, why why is there nothing here that I like? And maybe you're, you're on the wrong uh, um, yeah, exactly. Um, the lesson is broaden your horizons. And the, the other thing that I recommend is the um, the BBC have started reissuing classic Doctor Who on Blu-ray, uh, which is great. Um, and a couple of box sets released there. So I've been binge watching those in quarantine. They are terrible. And by terrible, I mean fantastic. Wonderfully old corny sort of BBC production values and sort of Tom Baker doing what he does, which is choose scenery. So I'm really enjoying those at the moment. And then finally, tying into the seventh seal and its sense of apocalypse, the end of the world, the fact that we're all doomed, and the fact that the world is continuously stuck in a cycle of ending that just never never stops i've been re-watching the second season of chris carter's millennium uh, which for my money is one of the best 22 episodes season of television ever made uh, it's available on dvd i don't think it's available to stream anywhere so if you can find it and get a hold of it it is fantastic it was one of my formative television shows as a teenager um, it stars lance henriksen uh, run by glenn morgan and james wong um, and is a fantastic piece of television and i've also been involved in a podcast covering that as well um so you can give those a listen if you want some kind of after uh, episode discussion as well so just to give those a shout out and this has nothing to do with the millennium no the millennium was a completely separate phenomenon the millennium was a more secular uh phenomenon in fact actually adherence uh to chris carter's millennium had a completely different uh set of beliefs i think than the backstreet boys millennium which was an event of itself this the alignments these things are very important you need to know these your star charts think look at your star charts people you'll map these things out we're living in will smith's millennium currently right that would explain a lot but none of us are getting jiggy with it andrew no (laughs) or going to miami no no one's going to miami no (laughs) if you are getting jiggy with not for the moment Uh, but all right so um what we know at the end of the podcast then is where people can find you online. Can people find you online? Is there any point in asking you this question, Phil? No. All right, then. So you can join us next <laughs> week on the podcast. We're having wrapped up our three-month tour of world cinema. We'll be landing with a season of American classics. And to help guide us in, the wonderful Luke and Jess Dunn from the Breakout World podcast will be joining us to discuss arguably Steven Spielberg's 21st century classic. That is the Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks vehicle, Catch Me If You Can. So please join us next week for that discussion. Take it easy, guys. Bye. See you, guys. Bye. Thanks very much, Phil. Ta-ta.